This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. This is Mornings with Simi on 980 CKNW. You're listening to the Mornings with Simi podcast. And on today's episode... Is you had traders who had the obligation to accept oil in the month of May but without storage because there's so little oil being used in the world compared to what's being produced. Something strange happened on the markets as the price of oil actually went into the negative selling point at below zero dollars. So what does that mean for the consumer when they show up to fill up their tank? We talk with Premier John Horgan about the government's priorities when it comes to addressing the COVID-19 pandemic. And the head of the emergency department for St. Paul's and Mount St. Joseph's hospitals is concerned that people may be avoiding the emergency department because of COVID-19. I mean, our, our numbers are strikingly down in the emergency department. Like at St. Paul's, it's 40 percent. At Mount St. Joseph's, it's 50 percent. And at other hospitals across Vancouver Coastal, it's at least that. That's all coming up on the Mornings with Simi podcast. Time for us to get an update now on the situation in Nova Scotia. What have we learned over the past 24 hours and what questions remain? Joining us once again, Sarah Ritchie, Global News anchor and reporter in Halifax. Thank you for being back with us, Sarah. Thanks for talking to me. So what is the update so far? Now, we're hearing that they have once again increased the number of people who have been killed. Yeah, and unfortunately, uh, Nova Scotians are bracing for another increase to that death toll. Uh, We now know that RCMP have said in excess of 19 people are dead in this shooting spree over the weekend. The reason they're saying that is that there are so many different crime scenes that are not yet fully, uh, completely searched. So we know there are 16 crime scenes scattered throughout a wide swath of rural Nova Scotia nearly a 100-kilometer stretch of the province. Um, Five of those include structures that have been completely burned to the ground. Most of them are houses, and the police don't yet know if there are people inside those houses who have died, and so they're hesitant to give us a final count. They do believe more than 19 people have died, and so we're waiting on another update from police today, uh, which we don't have a time for that yet, but we are expecting RCMP to give us another update on uh, just how those investigations are going and what more they have found. And how many fires are we talking about? I know they said 16 crime scenes, but how many those were structure fires. Yeah, so five of them were fires. And and we had heard originally, if you recall what we talked about yesterday, the um, this whole scene started in a little place called Port-a-Pic. Mm-hmm. And so we had heard originally from people in Port-a-Pic that at least three houses or three structures were on fire Saturday night in that little community. Um, so we believe three of them to be there. We're not 100% sure yet where the rest of them are. The other thing we're waiting on from RCMP that they've promised that they will deliver to the media and to the public is a timeline here. And that's going to be really key to trying to understand what happened. Um, you know, like I mentioned, there's almost 90 kilometers. There's 12 hours of time that this happened over and 16 different crime scenes. It's really difficult to wrap your head around what that actually looks like and how all of this unfolded. Right. So that timeline will hopefully be helpful. Now, from what I've seen of the timeline, there it looked like they said 11:30 at night saturday night was they got the original call of shots fired and then the crime spree really seemed to have started in the morning have they given any update on what was happening overnight in those hours 
No, not really. And and so I think, you know, the, the picture that we've gotten so far from police uh, and from witnesses in the area is just one of a really chaotic and right. terrifying night, honestly. Um, you know, shots fired and, and people believed to have been killed in Porto Pic and those fires started. And you can imagine just the massive police operation that would have started and the number of firefighters that would have been called in for that as well. All right. Now we know that uh, one RCMP officer was killed, but I understand another one was also wounded and is in hospital. How is that officer doing? Uh, You know what? Uh, One little bright spot here. I can give you a happy update. Uh, Constable Chad Morrison, an 11-year veteran of the force, is now at home uh, recovering from his wounds. We had... um, some pictures sent to us yesterday of him reuniting with his family. He appears to have young children. So that is some really, really good news for that officer. He will be okay. Um, he's put out a thank you message on Facebook to all of the people of Nova Scotia and the world for, for the support he's gotten. He says it's been overwhelming. All right, Sarah, thank you very much for that. You're very welcome. That is Sarah Ritchie, our Global News anchor and reporter in Halifax with the update. Unfortunately, it sounds like that death toll is going to increase again at some point with RCMP being careful to say that in excess of 19 people, uh, they believe, have been killed at 16 different crime scenes. More and more information coming out about the victims here as well. Just, uh, you know, portraits of just everyday people going about their everyday lives when this horror unfolded. We will be continuing to follow that story and bring you any updates as they are available. This is Mornings with Simi. Now we know these are times when we see things and hear things that we've never really seen before. But what happened yesterday with oil prices, even that was unprecedented. We started seeing something so bizarre that I myself checked, you know, several times different stories to say, is this really what's happening? The price of oil actually went into negative prices. Now, what does that mean exactly? Apparently, it all has to do with too much supply, not enough storage space. What does it mean for the long-term uh, aspect of the market? So we thought, let's break all this down. Let's find out what actually happened here. Joining us now is Bloomberg Canada's managing editor, Derek DeClue, to talk more about this. Good morning, Derek. Good morning. What the heck was all that about yesterday? Well, this is about uh, the futures market, which is a place where uh, people trade contracts for oil that's going to be produced in the future. So uh, in, in really simple terms, you know, one side to the, to the contract has the obligation to send the oil, and the other side has got the obligation to take delivery of the oil. But if you have a contract that says you have to accept a bunch of oil and you have no place to put it, that's a really scary thing. And that's what's going on, is you had traders who had the obligation to accept, to accept oil in the month of May, uh, but without storage, because there's so little oil compared, being used in the world compared to what's being produced, that storage tanks are filling up. So you had traders who literally had to pay people to take, to take their obligation to accept oil. In other words, those who don't have a place to put the oil had to pay those who do uh, in order to make sure that that they weren't stuck with with an obligation that essentially they they couldn't fulfill. And that's what happened in the oil market yesterday. And that's how you can see negative oil prices where where, uh, um, people are literally being paid to accept it. Okay. And so what about the whole deal that was negotiated to cut production? 
Right. So that was a, a little more than a week ago. And the major uh, oil producers, including Saudi Arabia and Russia, uh, Mexico, uh, had agreed to uh, cut about 10 million barrels a day. Uh, the world produces about 100 million barrels of oil a day. The problem is that as the longer the shutdown goes on, um, but, you know, really, the, we don't need anywhere near 90 million barrels of oil a day right now. Think about it. You know, most yeah. people are not getting in their cars and driving to work. They're not getting on airplanes and flying places. You know, if, you're, if you don't have any place to go, you don't have a lot of need for oil. Um, so I've seen estimates suggesting that the, the loss of demand is more on the order of 25 or 30 million barrels a day. <clears throat> so if you've cut 10, but the demand falls by 25 or 30, obviously there's going to be a ton of surplus oil. And that's why the storage tanks are, are filling up. They didn't cut steeply enough. So that's the futures market for the month of May. What does that mean, though, for the days and weeks ahead? Uh, we've been watching this morning the, the June contract, uh, and it, too, is plummeting. Uh, last I looked, it was on the order of uh, about $13, $14 a barrel. Uh, and that was, I guess, about $25 a barrel a couple of days ago. So um, prices are going to continue to fall um, until a couple of things happen. One is oil producers have to start doing the thing that they really don't want to do, which is producing producing less oil, shutting wells, shutting down production, uh, because there's not going to be any place to put it. The other thing, of course, that can happen is we get the virus under control, economies open back up, people start going back to work, and then you'll see you'll see the demand rise. Um, but as long as there is this kind of imbalance between what's being produced and what is uh, is being used, you, there's really only one place, one way for prices to go. Was this a bit of a wake up call as well for countries like Russia and Saudi Arabia because they had been having that battle about trying to outlast each other? I think so. Uh, I mean, I think it's a wake-up call for uh, for all companies, including Canada, that uh, all countries, including Canada, that uh, are, are dependent on oil. Uh, the world has been shocked, and uh, and the idea of having your uh, your economy based on a, a commodity like this, uh, to the extent that you know, Saudi Arabia and Russia are far more oil dependent than we are, but but nevertheless. Um, it's a real wake-up call that uh, uh, you can't play the sort of games that they played with trying to you know, flood the market and kill the producers of other countries uh, at a time like this without there being pretty dramatic effects. Derek, what has it done, do you think, when it comes to faith in the industry? Oil always seemed like that untouchable. It's always going to be there, even though people thought it was on its way out. But the industry itself seemed to think that you know, it's always going to be needed. Well, yeah, I didn't know, you know, it's going to be still be needed for, you know, for a long time to come until we can develop the technologies that um, uh, that can replace it. And, and and those are a long way off. But, uh, you know, we've had these periods before. This is not this is what happened yesterday is is unprecedented. But I remember living in Vancouver in the late 90s during an oil glut, buying gasoline for about 35 cents a liter and uh uh, so you, you have had these periods historically where um, demand fell off, usually because of a recession or some kind of shock like this. Uh, and uh, um, oil will be back, but the industry will be forever changed because of it. All right, Derek, thanks very much for talking to us about it this morning. 
Thank you. That is Derek DeClote, the managing editor of Bloomberg Canada, explaining what those negative oil prices meant yesterday. And in fact, as he mentioned, starting off today, taking a look at oil prices once again, uh, some of them, uh, including WTI crude, in negative territory. And it's all about not having the space to store oil that isn't needed right now, but it's still being produced. Seems ridiculous, right? That they would continue to produce at those levels, but that's what's been going on for the last six weeks. Uh, so, and oil, when you look at gas prices too, they're all over the map. I was saying this morning that coming into work, passing three different gas stations with three quite different gas prices. And I noticed that yesterday as well. Everything from 92.9 a liter, 89.9 to a dollar a liter. So, kind of varies depending on where you are. And uh, it sounds like today is going to be another day of uh, down down negative territory uh, for those oil prices as well. So we'll be keeping an eye on it. This is Mornings with Simi. How do we take those steps towards reopening British Columbia? And will that happen anytime this summer, because as we know, summer is a really important time of year, particularly for the tourism industry in this province, which is huge. It is a very profitable time. But look at all the events that have been cancelled. Yesterday, we found out that as well, the celebration of light, no fireworks this year. PE, if they manage to put it on, will look drastically different. All sorts of kind of summertime events that are just not going to happen. Well, over on Vancouver Island, they're also worried about the tourism sector. It should be a profitable time, but it's not, doesn't sound like it's going to be. And think about those, uh, how important it is to the economy of Victoria, for instance. Just one example, those iconic carriage horse rides around the harbour. Well, our Nikki Reitmeyer caught up with Donna Freelander, who's the owner and operator of Tally Ho Carriage Operators in Victoria. And she said they're essentially preparing for 12 months of little to no income. Now, Donna recently launched a GoFundMe page just to try to keep her horses fed through these difficult financial times. Since your business is so reliant on tourism, you know, what did you first think when this pandemic hit here in British Columbia? If we go back a few weeks and you first started to hear about coronavirus here and how it would affect the tourism industry, what was going through your head at that time? It's a good question. I think, um, you know, myself and other tourism operators, you know, you're trying to remain optimistic. You're trying to remain hopeful that there will be part of the season. And, you know, first thing for us was the cancellation of cruise ships. And then things just started to get worse and worse. We, um, we did actually operate four days into our new season this year, <laughs> but after uh, those few days, things are getting worse around the world, and I think, you know, it's just really important that we all do stay safe and healthy, so we closed operations on March 19th, and uh, for the foreseeable future, we'll have zero income, so, yeah. Well, that's going to be tough because, I mean, the saying, hungry as a horse, exists for a reason. How many horses do you have, and how many mouths to feed? Uh, we've got 18 draft horses, so it's shocking how much a draft horse can eat. You know, they weigh somewhere between 2,000 and 2,400 pounds, and we spend about $120 a day on feed. Jesus. Eh? So where are the horses now? Where do they live currently? Uh, well, the horses live with me and my family. Um, this was my late husband's business, and my daughters and I have kind of carried on the tally-ho tradition and losing him a few years ago. And, um, yeah, so the horses are still with us. They are part of our family. They live in our backyard, basically, and we're out there every day tending to their needs and being with them, just like our dogs and our cats. So 
through the pandemic, I mean, really the point to us for us right now is to keep them home um, where we can keep an eye on them, keep them healthy, know they're safe and well cared for. Can you tell me a bit about the business, uh, how your husband got involved with Tally Ho and how you guys are where you are today as a company? Yeah, well, Tally Ho actually started back in 1903. So this year is our 117th anniversary. The business was Victoria's original transportation company. So you can see old photos in the archives of, you know, six-up hitches and stagecoaches taking people around the different parts of the city, acting as a almost like a taxi service. Uh, and then as the world evolves around us, Tally Ho also evolved. And through the years, went from a six-horse hitch down to a four-horse hitch, then a two-horse hitch, and now here we are just running single carriages these days. And so my husband got involved when he was a kid. He grew up in the James Bay neighborhood where the Tally Ho operated and started working there when he was 15 and bought in when he was, I think he was about 21 when he bought in. And we just lost him quite suddenly about four and a half years ago. So, um, but my daughters and I have been, well, my daughters have obviously been involved since they were, you know, born. <laughs> we moved to the farm that we're on right now in 1997. So we've had the horses with us since then. So uh, we're just carrying on in his in his footsteps the best we can, kind of big shoes to fill some days. But, we, you know, again, community makes all the difference in the world. And, you know, I think going back to, you know, the circumstances of COVID right now, it's going to take a community to get everybody through this. And we hope everybody's able to kind of band together and we'll be doing the same thing back where in whatever ways we can support others. So what could happen? What could happen if you guys aren't able to withstand this storm? It's a really good question. Um, I don't know if I'm letting myself go there yet, to be quite honest. I will do everything I can for these horses. Uh, and at the moment, what everything I can is, you know, asking for a bit of public support as people can do it. I mean, you know, even but even public support financially or just even general support for each other right now goes a long ways. We may have a couple horses that we may sell. But all options are on the table, and like everybody during this really weird time, we'll just keep rolling with it and see how things go and, you know, plan B, plan C, plan D will come into play, I'm sure. So let's talk a little bit about the fundraiser that you've launched. What information do people need to know if they want to help you out a bit financially? Um, yeah, thank you. It's We've launched a GoFundMe page, so there is a Tally Hill Carriage Tours GoFundMe page up. 100% of the support that we receive will be directed onto horse care alone. It's not going towards other operational costs or that sort of thing. It's just my girls and I kind of managing all the horse care at the moment, so there's no wages or anything else. It's just horse feed. Otherwise, you know, there's more information on our website. There's information on our Facebook page. Uh, we will be doing updates on the horses regularly through social media. And, yeah, and if people have questions, you know, by all means, please reach out to us either through email or social media or however, call us if you've got questions. We have every intention of being back out there. We're, we're going to fight till we, <laughs> in any way we can. But, um, you know, it's, it's tough on everybody right now. Oh, that is so true. It is tough on everybody right now. That's Donna Freelander, the owner and operator of Tally Ho Carriage Operators in Victoria. And she was talking to our Nikki Reitmeyer, talking about how they are preparing for essentially 12 months, one year of little to no income. And they've recently launched a GoFundMe just to try to keep their horses fed through these difficult financial times. Uh, tourism definitely taking a huge hit. I mean, not just here in BC, 
right? But everywhere, like all over the world. Think about countries like Italy and France, which are some of the top tourist destinations in the world, uh, and how the same situation is happening there. Uh, so lots of trickle-down effects from that as well. If you want to weigh in, Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. Let's get an update on how things are looking in Ottawa today. Is there an agreement? How often is the House going to sit? Has all of that been worked out? Uh, joining us now for more on that is Abigail Beeman, our Global National Ottawa correspondent. Good morning, Abigail. Good morning. What do we expect to hear from the Prime Minister today when he makes his daily uh, speech? Well, today we're expecting the Prime Minister to focus on vulnerable Canadians. That's obviously a pretty large umbrella. We know that there are a number of groups who have been calling for more help, uh, who say they either aren't being helped or don't have enough help. So we'll wait and see exactly what the Prime Minister promises. But uh, Canadians, and I've been following this story closely, and Canadians that I've been hearing from are the elderly, people with disabilities, students, uh, the homeless population. There's a lot of different groups here. Uh, So we'll see exactly what kind of help he proposes, if any, today. Okay, and so we know there was a lot of kind of meeting and negotiating going on the last couple of days about what the House sittings are going to look like and how often they do that. What did they decide? Right. So MPs reached a decision yesterday that going forward, they will hold a one in-person session per week, obviously with much reduced numbers, and then two virtual sessions. This was a plan put forward by the Liberal government, which all parties, other parties agreed to, except, of course, for the Conservatives. The Conservatives had been pushing back against this, calling for more in-person meetings because they were calling for more accountability. Uh, that they were not successful in that push since everybody else voted with the minority liberal government and that was enough votes to pass. But the big question now is while MPs have agreed or while there is an agreement anyway on how to move forward, the question is, are they going to be able to get a virtual parliament up in time for next week, which is when it's scheduled? Uh, you, you know, you're talking about something that's never been done before. 338 MPs online at the same time dealing with issues like translation, uh, working with MPs in more rural areas who don't have the same kind of internet quality. There's a lot of issues on the table. And as a clue to how long this might take to work it out, there was a letter from the Speaker's office dated April 8th, where he asked for up to four weeks um, for the House to to figure out a way forward. And that would be May 8th. But uh, the MPs agreed to sit sooner than that. So we'll wait and see whether it's actually technically possible. But in terms of agreement, that deal was reached yesterday. Okay, so they are definitely getting back to that. Uh, Now, let's talk about the shooting that happened in Nova Scotia, the horrible situation there. I know the Prime Minister was asked about this in terms of gun control. What did he have to say? That's right. Uh, and as you may remember, this was a big tenant of the Liberal platform when they were re-elected in minority status in the fall. They were calling for or promising a ban on what they're calling military-style assault rifles. Still a lot of questions there about what that applies to, how it's rolled out, etc. cetera. Uh, but the Prime Minister said yesterday that they were on the verge of introducing legislation in Parliament when COVID-19 disrupted everything. Uh, his availability was 
was followed by one from the public safety minister, Bill Blair, who was asked at least half a dozen times about this. And he said that this was still a priority for the government, but he could not be pinned down in terms of when this legislation would come forward. He was asked, you know, do you have to wait for, quote unquote, normal parliament rather than virtual and reduced parliament to resume? And uh, we'll wait and see about that. Okay, I want to ask you as well uh, quickly about the World Health Organization. There's been a lot of countries that are voicing concern about that. I know a government minister from Canada spoke with the top doctor at the WHO. What did they talk about? That's right. So uh, according to the readout from the Canadian side, the International Development Minister, Karina Gould, began the conversation by thanking Dr. Tedros of the World Health Organization for the WHO's leadership through this crisis. Uh, but then we saw a tougher tone than we've seen Canada take before on this issue. And a, according to the readout, Minister Gould and Dr. Tedros agreed about how critical it will be to have a post-review of what happened. Uh, and the WHO is committing to accountability and transparency in that. Now, of course, important to note, we are not anywhere close to a post stage to talk about anything of any kind, but putting this out on the table that once things have moved forward, uh, that there will be an opportunity to dissect what happened uh, in terms of preparedness and uh, rollout throughout the pandemic. All right, more to come on that. Abigail, thank you. Thanks. That is Abigail Beeman, our Global National Ottawa correspondent, with all of the details coming out of Ottawa this morning. And of course, Prime Minister speaking daily, as he always does, at 8.15, and we will have that live for you. We're also speaking to Premier John Horgan coming up after the 7.30 news, so stay tuned for that. This is Mornings with Simi. This whole situation with the COVID-19 pandemic has reached every corner, it seems like, uh, not just of our province, but right across the country. And here's an example of that. The community of Alert Bay has declared a local state of emergency. And in that community, they are now observing a curfew in an effort to prevent the spread of COVID-19. Now, this is a village that is located on Cormorant Island. It's off the northern tip of Vancouver Island. How many people live there? about 500 residents. And you may remember that this uh, community has also been in the news in the last week or so because the mayor, Dennis Buchanan, said that he himself has tested positive for COVID-19. And he joins us now to talk more about the situation in Alert Bay. Mayor Buchanan, thank you for being here. Good morning, Simi, and thanks for having me on. And how are you feeling? I'm feeling much better. I'm still a little on the weak side, uh, but my strength is coming back slowly. Okay, now you were in the news last week because you said, listen, you nobody said that they'd had it, so you don't know how you got it, even though you thought the community was locked down. That's correct, yes. Uh, I was doing the hand washing, the safe distancing, and uh, staying home as much as possible. But obviously, at one point or another, I either touched my face or forgot to wash my hands once. And I guess that's all it takes. And how do you think it was brought to Alert Bay? Have there been any other confirmed cases or anything like that? Uh, yes, there have been other confirmed cases in the Bay, and that is why um, VHA, uh, Dr. Enns for VHA, uh, recommended to EMBC that uh, we go into uh, and declare a state of local emergency because we have what is, uh, VHA was calling a cluster outbreak. How many people is that? Uh, that I have no idea. Um, but uh, if uh, Dr. Enns says that we have a cluster outbreak, I will take her word for it. And 
obviously EMBC took her word for it as well because they went to Minister Farnsworth and uh, provided the evidence to him, and he has uh, granted us permission to declare our local state of emergency and to be able to implement the curfew to get everybody to stay home. Yeah, what does that state of emergency mean then? What, what happens in Alert Bay? It, what it does is it, it allows us to restrict uh, traffic uh, to and from Alert Bay. Um, we had people leaving Alert Bay uh, heading off down island shopping, and rather than citizens of Alert Bay uh, going down island shopping and possibly contaminating uh, people on Vancouver Island, uh, we can now restrict travel um, to essential travel only. And so what has the mood been like there, Mayor Buchanan? Like, were people taking it seriously before? It must, I would, would think that it would be a little bit hard to do that, given that people must assume, oh, we're so isolated, it's not going to happen here. That's uh, correct, and I think that's exactly why we do have this bit of an outbreak here, is uh, people felt isolated here and that could not possibly get here. Well, it did, unfortunately, as it has hit, uh, I think, the majority of the communities around the world. And so what is the mood like now in the community? I, I think it's uh, the message has finally hit home that it is here. Um, and that, and unfortunately, we still have a few people that are congregating for house parties, and that's why we are implemented the uh, curfew as well, is that uh, people now have to be either home or on their own property, or they're staying where they are uh, once the curfew is implemented. A few people congregating for house parties kind of sticks out, doesn't it, in a community of 500 people? Well, actually, there's about eleven to 1,200 people here, uh, because we have uh, quite a uh, majority of the people here are First Nations people. Okay. So when they do, they'll congregate. When there's a house party, you still probably hear about it pretty quickly. Oh, yes, we do, yes. And uh, that's why the uh, curfew is being implemented, is to uh, stop the house parties. So is that and, in effect now? Yes, it is. And uh, we're working very closely with uh, the RCMP, EMBC, uh, First Nations Health, uh, VHA, and uh, the Numgis, the Wheatlalau Area Council, and the Village of Alert Bay. We're all working very closely together. And I have to say that the support that we've had from the provincial government and and these other organizations has been fantastic. So what does that mean now when you have these rules that you can put into place, like the curfew? Does that mean you're going to be ticketing people? Is it just you can send people over to have a little chat with them? What does that involve? We'll be, yeah, we we certainly do not want to be heavy-handed and start levying all sorts of fines. That's not our intent. Our intent is to just ensure that people stay home and uh, we're trying to educate those that uh, have yet to comply. Okay, what's the medical facility situation like, Mayor Buchanan, in Alert Bay? What do you have there? We do have a, a hospital uh, here with uh, 10 extended care beds, 4 acute care beds, and uh, we also have the uh, uh, health center as well. Right, but I guess is there a concern then that that is going to be overwhelmed by an outbreak? Well, this time... Um, Arrangements have been made for uh, areas to um, where people can go in quarantine. Um, we have uh, spoken to the owners of Ocean View Cabins, and uh, they've said that they would rent a space if need be uh, for people to quarantine or self-isolate if um, they live in homes where there's a large number of people. 
So when you first heard the news, Mayor Buchanan, about what was going on, you know, in the rest of BC, all these concerns about stay-at-home orders, did, did, did you think that this might affect your community of Alert Bay? We were certainly uh, trying to get people to stay at home, and that, and uh, and I think, like most communities, we thought, "Whoa, you know, um, this is it's a different world now with this pandemic out there." It certainly is. So the curfew is in effect now. Uh, how are you letting people know that that curfew takes effect at nighttime? We do have what uh, a system in place to uh, warn people through our tsunami sirens, um, where we can make PA announcements and those sorts of things over there. I did a video, I believe it was yesterday, um, to be posted on our social media and on our websites around the community um, to inform you know our community members as to what was taking place. And for those people that, uh, uh, the elderly people don't have computers and stuff like that, it's been word of mouth or, or we have people uh, available to go door to door to make sure everybody is informed. Right, but there's no getting around this. If you're using the tsunami siren to tell people, nobody's missing this. That's true. Well, good luck, Mayor Buchanan. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Simi, for having me on. Anytime. That is Dennis Buchanan, the mayor of Alert Bay off the northern tip of Vancouver Island, small community there where they are dealing with, as you heard him say, a bit of a cluster outbreak of COVID-19. So now they are uh, under a state of emergency. They are uh, shutting everything down, essentially, and they're even putting in place a curfew. It's 9.30 p.m., so they sound that tsunami siren at 9 p.m. to notify people that the curfew is about to take effect. And you heard Mayor Buchanan say it. He himself tested positive, and he's recovering now. He's feeling a lot better. But he said he did everything he was supposed to do, social distancing. He washed his hands. But somehow it still got into Alert Bay, and they are concerned about that. Uh, We'll keep you posted on how that goes. This is Mornings with Simi. You know, since the first case of COVID-19 came to BC, we have looked to governments, especially the provincial government, to do something anything to help us deal with the situation. I'd say that's more true now than ever as people and businesses continue to suffer and we're all waiting to see what happens next. Well, those are questions that we are going to pose to BC Premier John Horgan, who joins us now. Thank you for being here. Good morning, Simi. How do you think we are doing at this point? Well, I'm very proud of how British Columbians have responded collectively to the challenge of our lifetime. Uh, You look around the world at the challenges in Europe, uh, even south of us uh, in the United States and across our country, and uh, in a comparative way, we're we're doing better in terms of flattening the curve. We are containing, to the best of our ability, uh, this uh, virus as it spreads across the world. Uh, The consequences, of course, are profound for people, for businesses, and for communities, and the challenge for all of us is to recognize that we are all in this together, and it's going to take all of us to come out the other side. Do you think it's time, though, to start talking about and thinking about ways we open things back up? So we've been talking and thinking about that from the day we started to uh, slow things down. Uh, I put in place a group of uh, advisors uh, within government. Uh, we uh, asked the private sector, whether they be uh, the Business Council, Federation of Labor, not-for-profits, Indigenous people to join with us. I'm on a conference call uh, shortly after this call with uh, representatives from the environmental movement to talk about how we shape uh, our collective future. And and we've been doing that from the beginning, Simi, but I think there's a recognition 
certainly I'm seeing it in my inbox of people wanting to hold fast. We don't want to give up the gains we've made in a, in a speedy uh, return to what may not even be normal. And, and uh, so we take our, our direction from the science from Dr. Henry, who was, as you know, pretty highly regarded and has been mm-hmm. uh, just outstanding uh, w- working with Minister Dix and, and the team at uh, Health and the health authorities across uh, the province. Uh, so we're, you know, uh, my sense, Simi, is there's, ang- there's disappointments and frustration and uncertainty without a doubt uh, but not an anger that we're seeing in the United States, because quite frankly, we all recognize that this is not uh, something that will just go away if we wish it away. We have to work together to to, to vanquish it. And there's a lot of worry there, too. I think we heard about a survey from the Greater Vancouver Board of Trade this morning. Half of small businesses say they're not sure they're going to be able to reopen when all of this is over. Does that mean more provincial support coming here? Well, what can be done about this? Well, we're, we've been trying to uh, work in tandem with the federal government, and we've had a lot of success. We've a couple areas where I think that the federal government could have done more, and I, I, I make that clear when I speak to the Prime Minister and the Deputy Prime Minister. Uh, premiers across the country have been talking weekly uh, and looking at different approaches. Uh, and as I say, I, the Board of Trade is part of my uh, task force, so I'm getting that directly from uh, Bridget Anderson, uh, the, the uh, CEO of the board, and all of her members, as well as the Chamber of Commerce. And, and that it, it, hospitality, for example, uh, thin margins, if you're in the restaurant business, so you've got high overhead in, in places like Vancouver and, and other metro uh, or uh, cosmopolitan areas in British Columbia, and your, your margins are tight. And, and to have a shutdown for four to six weeks or perhaps longer is profoundly uh, shocking to uh, your business model. And we're going to be having to look at all of that. Uh, and I would like to think with the federal government, and as I say, so far so good, but there is a, a limit to what we can do uh, unless we're all individually, but together uh, it is unlimited. And so uh, cities are losing revenue. The people aren't using the pool. People aren't uh, uh, expending the money that they normally would in the economy, which means that our revenues are down and the, uh, the other orders of government, federal and provincial. So finding a plan to borrow and build a, almost a Marshall plan type approach. And the Marshall plan, of course, was how, uh, the world came out of the Second World War. I think that's the magnitude of what we're talking about here, Simi. It's not just BC. It's a global issue. And even if we started tomorrow with, let's say, our forest sector, who is going to buy our products? And so you, you need to, there needs to be a world response. And BC, I think, is well prepared. I mean, you plan for the worst and hope for the best, but it has to be a collective effort. And there are going to be those uh, who won't make it through the other end. I think that's, uh, that's a, a truthful statement. I don't want to be provocative, but the challenges are enormous and, and the consequences uh, of, of every week for small businesses is huge. What about TransLink? Like, do you put that in the category of things that you think the federal government should help on? Can the province do more to help TransLink? Well, the province is TransLink. Uh, the communities that, uh, that fund it, uh, the uh, taxes that go from either the province or from municipalities, either in gas taxes, uh, which, of course, uh, you, we've seen a, a massive decline in oil prices. That's having a profound impact on world economies. But the, the province has and will continue to support public transportation. But ferries, uh, BC Transit, which is outside of the metro area of Vancouver, are all seeing massive declines in ridership because people are doing what Dr. Henry is, is recommending and they're staying home. But when we start to, to uh, dial back up in the weeks ahead, we're going to need this public uh, infrastructure in place and, and vibrant. So my, my appeal to the federal government, who have been partners on capital, uh, the Prime Minister and I 
just in the past two years have announced billions of dollars in capital for TransLink uh, to build new SkyTrain infrastructure and add more buses uh, to BC transit services. Uh, but it's always capital with the federal government. And we have an operating problem right now, and we will for the foreseeable future. And I think that's another area where we need to work together. BC ferries the same way, 90% drop off in, in ridership. So the fare, the fare box is empty. And that then means these public uh, institutions require even more public support. And we need to, I believe, do that together in all levels of government. And, and the federal government's grappling with that because they've got not just uh, transit systems in Vancouver, but in Calgary and Toronto and Montreal as well. So what kind of reception have you gotten to that idea, though, from the federal government? Because that's, you're right, these are cities all across Canada that are facing this. How can we make sure even transit, just as an example, gets looked after? Yeah. Well, what I've been trying to do, uh, I I had a positive relationship with the federal government prior to uh, the pandemic, and I I fully intend to maintain that. I've always been told, my mom raised me, to once you burn a bridge, you can never cross it again. So I always try and be optimistic and hopeful in my interactions with everybody. But in this case, uh, the, you know, the Prime Minister's out every day uh, trying to fill the gaps that we've all, all discovered uh, in, in our economy and in our social and cultural fabric. And I just believe that this is an area where uh, administrators in the finance departments have said, well, no, you don't. These, these institutions, ferries, transit, they don't pay taxes, therefore we shouldn't bail them out. Uh, but we're bailing out uh, airlines, and I'm not saying that's inappropriate. Of course, of course, we need to make sure that our our uh, transportation infrastructure, the private sector components, continue to thrive. But there are public sector components that are equally important to the daily lives of British Columbians that need support, and they're going to need it right now. So uh, I, I'm going to keep pushing. And again, the, the, the conversations are always positive. Good example was I, I felt that the federal government should be more aggressive on our borders, mm-hmm. particularly for incoming uh travelers, British Columbians returning home to YBR. And and the federal government agreed, but they were so slow to respond. And that's a a result of the magnitude of the challenges across the country. It's not, there's no blame being apportioned here. So I mean, they just couldn't move fast enough. So jurisdictions be damned. I mean, we needed to have people at the airport. So the province stepped in. Uh, Other provinces uh, are thinking of the same approach. and, And now there's going to be a plan across the country that's cooperative between the two orders of government, federal and provincial, that are going to meet the needs of Canadians. And that, that's as it should be. And there are other examples where uh, Doug Ford and Francois Legault and Jason Kenney, uh, examples of colleagues that I'm working with who wear completely different uniforms than me, see the world completely different from me. Uh, but we're working together in harmony because that's what Canadians expect us to do. Now, what about the homeless population? Because if there's one thing I get a lot of emails on, it's people concerned that we're not doing enough to protect the homeless population in this province. Huge concern. Uh, Dr. Henry raises this uh, with us uh, regularly uh, from a, from a managing the pandemic perspective. But you'll know and your, your listeners will know that the challenges of homelessness uh, and uh, have been a crisis in British Columbia for decades. Uh, I would suggest that it's as bad as as it has ever been, and that means more effort needs to be made. Uh, I've asked Shane Simpson, uh, who was born and raised in the downtown east side, a member of the legislature for Hastings, and and the minister responsible for social development and poverty reduction, to to have a plan implemented and ready to go as quickly as possible. And I think you'll hear from Shane in the days ahead about how we're going to try and do our best to 
uh, implement the protocols of the pandemic and also mm-hmm. try and find the opportunities for new housing options. Uh, BC Housing has been spectacular, I have to say, Simi, from our the, the three years that we've, almost three years that we've had the honour to be the Governor of British Columbia. Whatever we've asked of BC Housing, they've been able to deliver. So there's a, a pent-up uh, capacity within that organization. I've talked to the development community as well as City of Vancouver. Uh, we need to we need to address land use issues. We need to address uh, social housing issues. We need to make sure that we're building housing all the way across the board. But in this instance, at this time in our history, we need to focus on the, the homeless more than ever. And that's what I've asked Shane to do. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time on this today. That's a pleasure, Sammy. Nice to talk to you. Nice to talk to you as well. That's Premier John Horgan giving us an update on where BC is at in the fight against COVID-19. And now, of course, what happens after? This is Mornings with Simi. We were just talking about the potential for BC to reopen in the weeks and months ahead with Premier John Horgan. But that's all just talk right now and planning. But in the United States, they are moving full steam ahead, particularly in states like Georgia, where the governor announced that a whole bunch of different businesses are going to be re-allowed to open in the next week. To talk more about what is happening down there, we're joined by Reggie Cicchini, our Global News Washington correspondent. Good morning, Reggie. Good morning. So is where's Georgia at on the curve, though? I mean, are they is that behind them now? COVID-19? What's going on? No, Georgia is continuing to uh, actively uh, see new cases pop up. Yesterday, there were uh, roughly 700 new cases. They posted 52 new deaths. Uh, those were the numbers from uh, from Sunday. We'll expect the new numbers from them within an hour. They have not reached any of the uh, marked notes that are needed for the phased reopening. They haven't seen 14 days of decline in cases, a 14-day decline in deaths. Nonetheless, we found out yesterday from the White House that these guidelines put forward were simply guidelines. Governors get to make their own decisions. That's why we're going to see all of these businesses start to reopen on Friday and then more on Monday. What kind of businesses are we talking about? Well, Friday, we'll see things like salons, uh, uh, nail salons, uh, uh, people who want to get a tattoo, a piercing, bowling alleys. They're all going to reopen on uh, Friday. On Monday, dine-in restaurants, theaters, cinemas, they will all reopen. Uh, the governor saying as long as you practice social distancing, uh, these things will be okay. Like we've all been saying for the last 24 hours, how do you get a piercing or a tattoo while you're in the middle of social distancing? The metrics simply don't add up. So it's like they're just conducting human experiments. Well, I mean, look, this is the governor who said just two weeks ago that he had only recently learned that asymptomatic people could transmit the disease to somebody else. He, You know, this was recommendations and wording that came from the Centers for Disease Control, which is located in his state. So there are growing questions and concerns over what Georgia is trying to do here, whether it's to appease Donald Trump or whether it's to try and, uh, you know, give some kind of pat on the back to these protesters that have been out to say, look, we understand your frustration. We're just going to open up now. Are other states thinking about doing this as well? Tennessee is uh, on the uh, kind of approach to doing something similar. We know South Carolina is going to start reopening their beaches. There's going to be conversations about businesses going forward. This is something that Republican, strong Republican states and those who are in line with the president are going to have conversations with. And it's something that's still causing a lot of concern for health experts, including those that are on the president's team. No kidding. All right, Reggie, thank you. Thank you. This is Mornings with Simi. 
Now we're going to talk about something else we're keeping an eye on, of course, and that is our health care system. Now, normally we would be talking to our next guest about the latest book or thriller that he has written. But today we're talking about his other job as the head of the emergency department for St. Paul's and uh, Mount St. Joseph's hospitals. And there is a concern that they have, and that's what they want to raise awareness of. Joining us now is Dan Calla, a head of the emergency department. Dr. Calla, thanks so much for being here. Hey, Sammy, good to be back. Now, this time we're talking to you about the healthcare system. And I've been wondering about this because they keep saying that visits are down to the ER. Where are all the people who have probably some chronic conditions? (laughs) We we are wondering the exact same, Sammy. I mean, our our numbers are strikingly down in the emergency department. Like at St. Paul's, it's 40%. At Mount St. Joe's, it's 50%. And at other hospitals across Vancouver Coastal, it's at least that. So what are we? What's happening? What do you think is going on? We think people are scared. I mean, there's there's a certain factor of just social distancing. Obviously, has the effect of quelling things like the flu as well, and less people are outside and working and doing sports, so there's less injuries. So we understand that. But what we're seeing is that you know, for conditions across the board, things like cardiovascular conditions and, and, and abdominal pain and strokes and, and and things that really shouldn't be affected by social distancing, we're seeing you know forty percent less visits. So fewer people presenting with heart attacks and strokes as well. Very much so, and it and that's you know what's a big concern to us that that maybe people are having heart attacks and strokes at home for fear of contracting a virus uh, at the hospital and you know the risk is negligible or less of the hospitals are you know our message is that the emergency departments are very safe and uh, it's not safe to stay at home with a medical condition or a medical concern that you otherwise would have sought help for are you worried as well about what could happen uh, when this is all over and all of a sudden there's all these undiagnosed conditions yeah certainly I, I we're worried about that you know, and the, and the problem goes wider than just, you know, chronic medical conditions. There's mental health conditions. We're seeing less people present with, with the typical mental health conditions, you know, and and this is clearly having an impact on everyone's mental health. So we're concerned what might happen afterwards and what people are suffering with at home right now. And so what is your message then to people out there? Is that the emergencies are not only safe, but... They're quieter than they've been in, in, in 15 or 20 years. The hospital has lots of capacity. We're not seeing that much COVID right now. And we're, you know, we have very strict infection control measures in there. We don't feel there's any risk of anybody acquiring who doesn't have COVID acquiring it by coming to the hospital. So it's a, it's a good time. The waits are shorter. And, uh, you know, we want people not to neglect other medical conditions because of the fear of the pandemic. You think they're ignoring their symptoms? I don't know they're ignoring their symptoms, but I think they're certainly thinking twice and sometimes deciding not to come to the emergency department because they, they think there's some kind of increased risk. Now, we said, we mentioned off the top here that, of course, you are also an author. You have written many best-selling books, and I have to go back to the one of the ones that I've read of yours from years back, and that is, of course, Pandemic. Sure. You did a lot. You do a lot of research for your books. Anything that you see unfolding now, is this like what you thought it was going to look like? <laughs> well, I mean, I've written a few books about pandemics, including one last year called We All Fall Down about the Black Death coming up. But the one consistent thing about my books is they all have slightly happier endings than what's coming on, what's going on right now. Not in BC. I mean, we've been great in BC, but, 
in all my novels. Um, sure, a lot of the fear and a lot of the anxiety is exactly what I, I tried to capture that's existing now. But the problems generally were nipped in the bud and, and, and stopped before they've got to the level that this pandemic has gotten to. And you're saying, though, that even though all that is kind of going on at the emergency rooms of St. Paul's and other places, it's fairly quiet right now? Very quiet, yes. Okay, so you want to tell people if they need to go to emergency, they shouldn't be afraid to do that. Yeah, it's a really important message, right? And especially now, I mean, there's a lot of family doctors who are great doing great uh, virtual care and mm-hmm. telehealth, but there's a lot of clinics that are closed. A lot. You know, it's not like there's a lot more, there's less options for people with chronic illness and, and underlying conditions out there. And we are open and we are ready and, and wanting to treat. We don't want it to get to extreme. We don't want people to suffer and, worst case scenario, have disability or die because they, they neglected what should be addressed in the emergency department. All right, Dr. Calla, thanks for your time this morning. Oh, great, great to be back on. Thanks, Amy. That is Dr. Daniel Calla. He's head of the emergency department for St. Paul's and Mount St. Joseph's Hospitals in Vancouver. Also an author. You may have read or picked up one of his many best-selling books that he has there. But right now he is concerned, as many other ER doctors are, that there's just not enough people presenting at emergency with the typical things that they would see. People with heart attacks, people with strokes, that kind of thing. And they're worried that people are staying home out of a fear of coming to the hospital. And they're saying, don't. If you feel those symptoms, make sure you get yourself to the ER. This is Mornings with Simi. We also want to take this time at the end of the show, like we always do, to salute and highlight some of the good things that are happening out there in our communities. And that's why we're going to talk to our next guest. It is Randy Smallwood, the president and CEO with Wheaton Precious Metals, because uh, they're doing something big for charities in our area. Randy, good morning, and thank you for being here. A pleasure, Simi. Thank you for having me. Now, you guys are really taking a big step. Tell me what you're doing. Well, um, you know, we, uh, we, of course, are in the precious metals business and uh, gold prices are responding relatively well. And so we're in relatively good shape. I mean, we've, like every other person on this planet, we've all been impacted by the COVID-19 pandemic here. And uh, But when we look around, we see that so many of our neighbors are facing significant challenges and, and are going to continue to over the next couple of months. And so we've decided to set up a a $5 million, uh, U.S. $5 million community support and response fund, a CSR fund, to uh, help provide some support for the communities and their neighbors during these, uh, during these challenging times. That's amazing. A-, a million dollar fund. So where do you hope that money gets used? How would you like to see it get used? Well, it's $5 million U.S. dollars and $4 million in, and $4 million of that will be, will be pushed uh, towards the communities that surround uh, the mines uh, that um, that we ha- we get our, um, uh, our 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 metal from our precious metals from uh, so that's mines in Brazil and Mexico and Peru etc. But we've got a million dollars US that will be focused on uh, uh, providing additional support here in Vancouver where most of our employees live. And, you, and, um, and and so, you know, we'll, we'll be pushing that back into the community programs here in Vancouver. And have you been hearing from those employees? Have you had to lay people off as a result of all this? No, we've, uh, as I said, I mean, we've been impacted. We've had some suspensions in production and stuff like that. But we've uh, we've shifted to a work from home and we've got all of our employees actively busy uh, continuing to run the company going forward. So, uh, so you're feeling uh, lucky and you want to pay it forward. Condition. Exactly. I, I sit and look at it. We've been impacted, but nowhere near to the extent that uh, that we see in terms of our neighbors all the way around. 
Well, Randy, you know what? We salute you. Thank you so much for all that hard work that your company is doing. We love to hear that. Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity. It's the right thing to do. That is Randy Smallwood, President and CEO with Wheaton Precious Metals. Millions of dollars that they are putting into a fund to help communities in and around where the mining projects are and uh, people here in BC close to home as well. Amazing work that they are doing.